Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and I want to welcome you back to the show this week. And with our focus on a few different issues, as we do each week, we try to bring you uh, very engaging current issues, and we'll be covering a lot of territory today. The first half of the show, looking at this question about a party platform, as we've ended the party conventions and the nomination process, uh, one of the functions that political parties do every four years, at least on the national level, is adopt a party platform. What are the issues, the primary issues of concern and focus? And we didn't have that happen for the Republican Party. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But in the second half of the show, just to give you a preview, I will be welcoming a couple of my colleagues here at Tarleton State, and we're going to have something that we hope will be a future addition to the show on occasion, and that is a roundtable where we take some specific issues that we're either teaching, researching, that are in the news, that are of concern, and we offer different perspectives uh, on those issues. So we'll get to that in the second half of the show, uh, but I do want to welcome you again. I want to direct you to tarletonradio.com. If you're listening online uh, or listening on the radio, you know you can also listen online. And then also our Facebook page, uh, where we post interesting articles, related articles to the topics that we're discussing each week, and also SoundCloud. So if you miss a show, then you're able to download or listen on SoundCloud uh, each week uh, following the broadcasts of the show right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. So the first part of our show today is focused on the GOP platform. So what happened? What happened this past week? with the Republican National Convention and the adoption of a platform. So most of you may already know that the Republican Convention uh, was moved. It started out in North Carolina, went to Jacksonville, then came back. It was downsized. It went online uh, for the most part. Uh, it, it changed very radically over the last, uh, I would say, six weeks or so uh, in order to try to pull off this event and to have the primary focus on the uh, nomination of Donald Trump as the nominee from the Republican Party. Okay, so that that was a given, but but this this back and forth, these changes made it very very challenging. You had the week before the Democratic Party, who had planned uh, for a number of months to have their convention online, and they were able to adopt a party platform, something that these conventions do every four years when they come together. So let's talk about that for a moment. What What is a party platform and why is this a kind of critical function of a, a party convention? And then we'll get to a little bit about the GOP and the concerns here about not adopting a platform uh, for this next four years. So party platforms are documents that represent a tremendous amount of, of debate and discussion where delegates come together, they bring with them to these conventions the issues of concern uh, that uh, of, of their uh, fellow party members uh, that have come from their districts, from their states. They bring all of this together. They, they meet and have discussion about what the, the statement, the general statement of the party on that specific issue. So they're taking specific policy areas. What, what really is the, the agenda, the focus? Now, I do want to say here at the onset that, that these platforms have a varying degrees of significance. Uh, first of all, if there's even a chance of accomplishing things that may be identified in the platform, your party has to win. You have to be in power. You have to have the votes that you need in Congress. You have to have uh, the the White House. Uh, this makes it uh, very challenging for the party that kind of loses out or does not have, or when we have a divided Congress like we do now. So the other side of that is that it, it is a formality in some sense in terms of a function of a political party, but it also represents I think, democracy, uh, the way we govern ourselves within the party process. And so this is what becomes significant because it, it gives people a sense of, of empowerment and connection to the issues that they think are critical. And they're putting them forward in a public document that is eventually adopted by the party at the convention and then is put online, is sent to the media. Uh, it becomes a document that politicians will reference uh, political leaders will look to uh, that will become uh, uh, 
a point of connection with advocacy groups, those who are trying to kind of zero in on what they can accomplish uh, in government uh, over the next cycle. And so this document really represents all of that. And while politicians at times may just kind of give it lip service, and you think about it this way, if you're running for president of the United States and you, you get elected, your agenda is your agenda. And it's your agenda in as much as you can, uh, what you can accomplish by bringing people together. Either one, you have the votes to get things through Congress and to pass them into law. Otherwise, you bring together and find consensus. You try to adapt your political agenda to, to get the things accomplished that you want to. You use the powers of the presidency to do that. And so in that great scheme of things, a party platform is not always that significant because it becomes really the president's agenda and the, the political maneuvering and uh, uh, direction that and things that happen, the issues that come up during a presidency that require the president to to respond and to try to find consensus or direction or provide that direction through uh, how they see that issue uh, should should work out. What what is the response of government and the role of government related to that issue? So, again, I emphasize here a party platform and all of that can become very insignificant. In fact, I would ask listeners if if you've even ever heard of this, a party platform. And some people might say, well, no, but others would say, well, yes, I've been involved in that on the district or the county level or the state level. I went to a state convention and, and adopted certain things that we wanted to be considered for the national party platform. But the average person who's not been involved with political parties just may not be aware of this. And that, to me, is a signal to say, well, how important is it? So I want to separate that out. It's, it's, it's important, not in so much as it represents the actual agenda of the party that has the power in Congress and the White House, as much as it represents a process, a democratic process where you give a forum and a means and a mechanism for people to come together and express their views on the issues that they think are critical. Uh, so this is not just oh, this issue is important to me, I'm going to email or call my legislator, I'm going to call my member of Congress, my senator, uh, as a part of trying to influence uh, policy outcomes and influence government. This is a very direct way that uh, people can be involved within a political party and, and really try to set uh, uh, issues and an agenda out front uh, and, and connect across the party with a level of consensus that says that these issues are important to us. And this is how we apply our uh, uh, the role of this party, our political ideology, our views of the role of government to these issues. Now, that is something that I think politicians listen to. I think that's what they, they look to when they're trying to find the support that they need to get certain things accomplished. They can find it in those areas often where there has been consensus. And that's what a party convention demonstrates. It, it shows consensus, not just around a candidate for the office, but also around very critical issues that are put to the forefront and, and really ask of those who are going into office uh, to address and to make the focus, make their priority uh, over the coming years. So now that takes us to the Republican Party and the, the GOP convention, and, and what happened? Why not a party platform this year? So part of it was the function of the convention, not being able to bring all these people together, and in a timely manner, the organization of it. Okay, the Democrats were able to do it, but they had been working and planning on this for a while to be a virtual convention, and so they could set up the mechanism virtually for people to debate issues and to develop a platform. Uh, the Re Republican uh, uh, convention they just didn't have that kind of time. And and really the focus of this convention was much more on uh, the agenda of the president, which we'll talk about here in a moment, uh, in relation to the party platform. So what happened was, is the, the, the Republican National Committee issued a one-page resolution explaining what their focus is going into this election and why not have a party platform. Why did we not do a party platform? 
And so, and it mentions this, it mentions the convention and the challenges of that and others. So let, let me read a few things out of this so that you can see this firsthand or hear this firsthand. So it starts, whereas the Republican National Committee has significantly scaled back the size and scope of the 2020 Republican National Convention in Charlotte due to strict restrictions on gatherings and meetings and out of concern for the safety of convention attendees and our host. So that's very clear at the front. I'm, I'm going to skip down a minute. I'll link to this on the Facebook page so you can go to that and, and look at this document in its entirety. Uh, the RNC, whereas the RNC had the platform committee been able to convene, would have undoubtedly unanimously agreed to reassert the party's strong support for President Donald Trump and his administration. So this is the first phrase that you you get that indication that, okay, we're just we're just putting it all on the president and the president's agenda. Whereas the media has outrageously misrepresented the implications of the RNC not adopting a new platform, okay, this was given attention in the media, and continues to engage in misleading advocacy for the failed policies of the Obama-Biden administration, rather than providing the public with unbiased reporting of facts. Okay, so very political statement and a focus statement. And then whereas the RNC enthusiastically supports President Trump, and continues to reject the policy positions of the Obama-Biden administration, as well as those espoused by the Democratic National Committee today, therefore be it. Okay, so here, in looking back, they're, they're, con they're connecting a, vice pr a presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, with the Obama administration, and saying, well, we continue to respond to the policies, and it's really a political statement to say what you're going to get with Joe Biden is the same policies that you saw with the Obama administration. So they say resolved, be it resolved that the Republican Party has and will continue to enthusiastically support the president's America first agenda. Resolved that the 2020 Republican National Convention will adjourn without adopting a new platform until the 2024 Republican National Convention. So where this goes on with a few other resolutions, but what I want to point out here is just verifying that, yes, no platform was adopted and there was a, it was intentional. It was intentional in a number of ways, intentional because pra practically it was difficult to host a convention and have a platform come together. Secondly, they're linking uh, Joe Biden to the Obama administration and saying our 2016 platform really responded to that. Third, we are supporting President Donald Trump and his administration, uh, as well as his America first agenda. Uh, and then finally, it's that we'll get back to this into this process in 2024. So on the one hand, I want to say I'm, I'm not I'm tr again uh, trying to focus on being a uh, uh, nonpartisan here and just examining this process for what it is. I'm, I'm not about debating uh, the, the political aspects of this in terms of the statement by the Republican Party and, and their support for the president's agenda. What I see here is something that hopefully will be rectified in 2024, and that is a process within the, the political party itself that is democratic, that represents how we govern ourselves. And I think that's very critical. And I think that's important that that happens. First of all, because we already see that we have a, uh, a limited uh, forums here, having a strong two-party system in which people can come together uh, and debate these issues. So here you have only two parties that represent large segments of the American public. And it's within these forums that those people can come together and try to find consensus that then has some impact on those that are elected and how they govern. And so it's a very critical function of our political system. I mean, it would be great if we had more of these forums, but the way our system has developed, it, it is that two-party system either one or the other party is going to have uh, some level of power and be able to move things forward and address critical issues. And so here within this process of developing a party platform is where we have 
uh, people coming together, representing their uh, constituents, representing the people in the party across the country and being able to offer this input. The second thing that I see is, is a challenge here is that all of this debate and, and how that is a factor, a, a necessary element of our political system is now is, is, is done away with. Uh, and, and that to me is a very dangerous thing because this idea that we can't come together in all of our diversity within either political party and have debate and try to move to consensus. That's what we need to be doing as in governance. That's what we need to be doing in our legislatures in Congress is the issues of concern come to the forefront and you have a high level of debate and you try to find consensus and you try to move forward. This is a, a community way, a collective way uh, of addressing this. And so this is one of the things that I saw that is very, very uh, uh, dangerous in terms of the function of a convention, as well as uh, uh, a challenge to our political system when you have people who, who are disengaged and who do not recognize the value and see the value, even when you're renominating a, a presidential candidate of debate and consensus. And then the final thing, and this is what I want to uh, emphasize and close before we go to a break here, and that is that this, this process, uh, as I've said all along, within the parties themselves is very democratic. It's very democratic. And, and what we should advocate, all of us, no matter what our party background or how we engage with politics, but we should engage that all, we should uh, encourage that all of those processes are democratic. It's not democratic to not have debate on an agenda, to not uh, evaluate the current and critical issues, and then to throw all your support behind a, one person, one candidate, and their agenda. Okay, well, whatever their agenda is, uh, that's what we agree with. Uh, that, that moves away from the role of a democratic process within the, the way we govern and the, in the way we do our party politics, in the way we do our elections. And, and to me, that's a very dangerous thing as well. We, we should have el democratic elements in all aspects of our political system, uh, because otherwise that concentrates power. Uh, democracy is meant to keep power spread as broadly as possible. Of course, the original Greek meaning of it is that the people hold, hold the power. Uh, and so what that does is it takes that power away from the people to be able to debate these issues, to come to consensus, and then to give direction to their political leaders, not the pol political leaders themselves say, this is the direction we're going. And everybody goes, yeah, hey, yeah, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll do that. Um, and they or they just put the, the stamp of approval on an agenda that says, well, whatever the president or whatever this nominee wants to do, that's what we're going to do. That's our agenda. Uh, so think about those things. I'll put some links on Facebook uh, to, uh, to with documents and some articles related to this. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our roundtable and our discussion on a few critical issues with Casey Thompson and Marcy Reynolds. for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for a fun, casual podcast? We'll listen to Cruising the Planet, conversations between a rotating crew of broke college students just trying to get through the semester. Listen in live every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Central on the Tarleton Radio YouTube channel, or listen to the episode afterwards wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Cruising the Planet. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State, and I want to welcome you back to the second half of the show. And as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, this is a new feature that, that uh, we're, we're trying out and, and hopefully we can continue to do on a regular basis because I'm joined today uh, by two colleagues that are very much engaged uh, both in the, the study and analysis of government on the state and the federal level, but also teaching 
working, uh, as well as, and I have to say, and I'm, uh, after our meeting this morning, I'm, I'm very excited about our collaboration even more so. I mean, I think it builds every time, but the three of us are working on a new Texas government textbook that is focused on policy and civic engagement. And it's a it's a, a long project I hear probably 18 months to, to two years or so that we'll be working together on this. But it engages us with a wide range of issues that I think helps us to bring some really good analysis and some depth and substance to things that are happening right here in the state of Texas. And so what I like to do from time to time is have uh, Casey Thompson, who is an assistant professor of uh, uh, legal studies, but also teaches government classes. Uh, and then uh, Marcy Reynolds, who is an assistant professor in political science and teaching uh, government as well. She teaches, I think, uh, women in politics, our intro political science course. Uh, we have some a lot of uh, of expertise now uh, in the room, I should say, or at least virtually here in, in there. And the other thing too, that and part of the reason for this, and one of the shows that I like the most on uh, POTUS, which is the uh, Sirius XM station, is that on occasion they would do the, uh, what was called politics straight up. And that's where they would meet at the National Press Club for about a three hour show. And they would rotate in uh, different people, journalists, but also uh, 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 policy experts and so on. Uh, but it was also connected with cocktail hour. So I don't know if we'll, we'll progress that way. I mean, virtually, it's a little bit difficult. And of course, I think Marcy and I are here at the school and Casey's working uh, offsite today. But uh, 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 anyway, it's, 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 it's a good model. Uh, we both know that or we all know that sometimes uh, to, to try to discuss politics and, and actually make sense of it, uh, you, you need a little drink there on the side to be able to uh, uh, to get through it. But uh, but but anyway, today we're all uh, we're all on virtual. And uh, I think the only thing I have is my water bottle. So we're going to we're going to make do and, and uh, see how this works. But thank you for joining us, uh, both of you. I'm glad to have you on the show. And, and our first issue here that we put on the list today, we celebrated a century, a milestone here, of a century of the right to vote for women. It was on August 26th of 1920 uh, that the 19th Amendment was certified following the vote of the state of Tennessee, which became the state and the vote that put it over the three-fourths necessary to ratify this amendment. I was reading a little bit about that vote uh, that almost didn't happen, 49-47, and the deciding vote was by uh, Mr. Byrne, who was in that legislature, who had got, gotten a note, a letter from his mother asking him to vote to approve it because she wanted the right to vote. And that's what swayed him to cast that that vote that put it over the top. So interesting history here. But I really wanted to focus in on the significance of this when we look at it 100 years back and, and really some of the challenges and, and seeing as we look at this timeline in our country of expanding uh, voting rights and and why you know something like this took so long and 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 then why is it so critical that we continue to to emphasize this today why do we why do we need to keep this this milestone and this significant accomplishment which I think we can all agree should have happened a lot sooner in the history of our country if you see the ideals but that we that we uphold but but it took time it took a lot of time for this to come to the forefront uh, of, of, of governance and politics and, and then for people to accept it. Uh, Marcy, I turn to you first. What, what thoughts do you have on that when we look at the significance of the right to vote for women? Well, putting it in that context, I would say the drive and the goals and finally successfully achieving the right to vote for women was probably one of the longest social movements in our history. Mm -hmm. I mean, it began even before the Constitution was created with Abigail Adams asking her husband, please remember the ladies, her husband, mm -hmm. John Adams. And then we had Seneca Falls and the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848, which mirrored the Declaration of Independence. And then we had the abolition with women joining in the fight for abolition to end slavery. And then the 15th Amendment getting passed that gave men the right to vote, but not women. So women kept on going, they were imprisoned, they illegally voted, they illegally ran for office before finally 
achieving the right to vote. So I love the story that you gave us about the, the Tennessee uh, official and his mother asking him to vote that way because it was about time. I mean, and so I feel like, you know, that's throughout our history, there have been groups that have been disfranchised and are working towards the right to vote and having equal access to the polls that we see continuing through history. So it didn't end with the 19th Amendment in 1920, of course. There was a lot more work to be done because at that time, even we had poll taxes in place that made people pay to be able to vote. So that was an, a cause for another group of people that included women and also many other people to try to take away poll taxes so they could get access to the polls without jeopardizing you know, their livelihoods by having to pay this poll tax. So we have that you know, going on in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And I think it continues today through various calls through, um, and issues that are percolating throughout Texas and the country about registration requirements, about residency requirements, about um, going to the polls to cast a vote, or do, can we vote from home? So all of these are issues that are still percolating in our country and do trigger that, that same goal and the desire for access to the polls, for that fundamental right to vote that women fought so hard for until 1920 and beyond. Great, great overview there of looking at the, the development of it. And one of the things when you look at that, uh, uh, Casey, is that and uh, in, in reading back through some of the material on on the development of, of, of toward the constitutional amendment was just the kind of the shaky legal ground uh, on all of this. I mean, in that you look at uh, such a diversity across the country. And then, of course, this gets tied up with women owning property and and. Of course, you have many states that are out in front of this already. I mean, when we look back on that, um, what does it tell us about the challenges of this within a within a, the legal system that we have? I mean, we could put put that on other civil rights issues and see that it that it often took political force. Eventually, you know, people engaged and through processes of uh, of, uh, uh, of response to, to crises or going through the judicial system to get things to happen. But, but on this, it's just, it, it really over the, the 19th century and even into the 20th century, it, it's so uh, diverse in terms of it, the legal standing of, of women to be able to vote across the country. Well, yes, it was. And, and jumping on uh, what Marcy had said also, uh, it was 40 something years prior that the, the first time the amendment got introduced, I think it was 1878, uh, was the first time that the amendment got introduced into Congress. And, and it, it struggled uh, for years by, you said, up into the 20th century, by the early 1900s, by 1910, 1912 timeframe. Uh, there were about a dozen Western states that had already done something on the state level. Uh, and there were dozens of other lawsuits that were challenging the the male only uh, voting status. A lot of the Western states uh, the, were a lot more independent in their nature. Uh, Texas kind of followed along in those and uh, had some voting at the state level uh, in 1918 prior to the, the 1920 amendment. And. I'd, I've always kind of understood it. Uh, the, the way I've explained it is, you know, I, I have a mother, a sister, a wife and a daughter, and they're all pretty strong Texas women. And, <laughs> and telling them they can't do something doesn't work out very well. Right. Uh, and so that 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 spirit kind of in the Western states uh, carried over that kind of led it. Now, from the from the legal side. The amendment's really, really short. I mean, it's one of the shortest ones we have. It just says that the right of the citizens of the United States uh, shall not be de denied or abridged uh, on account of sex. And so it was very short in language. Uh, it, so it was definitely a, a policy or a, a perception argument, not a arguing over the drafting of the language uh, that, that was the big fight uh, for, the, for the longest time. Well, uh, what you said about uh, about uh, Texas women and so on, I, I get that sense when you read about Wyoming. And of course, a lot of this started with that of 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 in that statement of, well, 
we'll wait a hundred years to enter the union if we can't bring the women uh, in terms of emphasizing that right to vote because they were being pressured to, to do away with that. But if we go all the way back uh, to New Jersey, which actually started out with women having the right to vote. And I think this is where it kind of connects to our current times to where some of this may be more relevant in, in watching how politics and political power influences that it was taken away because of uh, elections and there was accusations of voter fraud that men were dressing up as women and then voting twice. And so uh, so it was eventually taken away because there was the fear that the political outcomes were not what uh, those in power wanted them to be. And it was targeted at women who had the right to vote. Uh, so I think, Marcy, those issues that you brought up, are, it's very relevant because you see how politics plays into this. And we've seen it all along in the, uh, the Voting Rights Act and, and even beyond that. You, you've seen politics want to use and kind of uh, uh, try to move the borders of, of what where that right rests uh, in order to get the political outcome that you want. And that's something that we've got to be very wary of, I think, going forward. Uh, let, moving on to our uh, next issue. Uh, so let's bring it into the last two weeks, Democratic convention, Republican convention. The first half of the show, I focused on uh, the lack of the uh, passing of a party platform by the Republican Party. But looking at these conventions in general, I think it's it's critical for us to help our listeners understand the value of these or and really the impact or lack of impact uh, on uh, the race for the presidency. Uh, especially in this midst of this crisis where they were virtual. So they weren't the big week long, all day long press coverage, all day long on TV uh, events. They were staged. They were recorded. Uh, they were meant for uh, a certain impact. Uh, Casey, I don't know in your thoughts. Uh, uh, I know we all, uh, you, the, the two of us with our your families, you don't always have time to sit and watch three hours of convention TV in the evening when you're trying to put a little one to bed or, put the dog outside or whatever it may be. But uh, so uh, I know our engagement may not have been as fully as we would like to, or it maybe it is because uh, I don't know how much you can take of that over a whole week, but just your thoughts, Casey, what, what do you see as the, especially these conventions this year, the impact or the significance of them? Well, they're, they're historically significant, uh, obviously just because they are so drastically different. I mean, this was, uh, this was kind of the evolution of, of entertainment. It went from uh, being, you know, taped before a live studio audience to a made for TV movie. Uh, and everything was absolutely choreographed. Uh, they knew uh, where they're going to hit their marks. And so it lost that live dynamic. It lost the funny hats. Mm -hmm. It lost all the confetti and the, the balloons dropping. And so it, it's absolutely uh, going to have a, a, a historical uh, impact that we're just going to have to wait and see it comes out. The the more interesting thing that I want to watch is uh, the bump that comes out of both of uh, the conventions. Uh, over the last few years, uh, there's still been a bump, uh, you know, the, in the polls that the candidates have gotten, but that has gone down. Uh, if you look at the average over the last 50 years, uh, it's been an average of about a five point, uh, bump in the polls coming out of the conventions, uh, on either side. And I, I don't know that we're, I don't know that we're going to see that, uh, this time. And so I think it may be on both sides a little underperforming. Uh, as far as the impact uh, that it that it has on the at least on the polling data at this juncture. Right. Uh, I, I agree with you there on uh, and it will be interesting to see how, uh, especially in this backdrop of what was going on in uh, uh, Wisconsin uh, for the Trump, uh, co the Republican convention and Trump's messaging and things uh, this week. Uh, so there were a lot of, of elements of these and, and from all different directions, the. The, the, the Republican convention was much more focused around the person of Donald Trump and uh, around different aspects of, of things he's engaged with, not not heavy on policy. And I don't think either conventions were that they were there, there just wasn't that in-depth focus on, uh, you know, here's the specifics about what we we need to do. Uh, and and it, it seemed like that they were much more, uh, at least on the for the Republican convention, 
directed at that voting block that helped Trump win the election in 2016. Democrats seem to be trying to be inclusive, uh, but but trying to balance between that and 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 moving as they do with the convention. And and most parties in the past have done this: move to the center and try to pull pull more people in. Uh, Marcy, I don't you know, do you any thoughts on that and seeing how well they kind of tried to pull that off and and what what's the, the the benefit of the approaches that they took with these conventions and the way that they did them? Well, okay, thank you for asking. <laughs> I think you mentioned that the Republican National Convention was all about Trump. Well, I also think the Democrat National Convention was all about Trump and you okay, know trying to get yeah. out of office. So um, I think both parties are largely playing to your ba- to their base. Uh, because we've seen over the past four years, Trump's base has remained pretty consistent at about 46%. It varies just a little bit, but doesn't change a lot. And with the Democrats, they have this coalition of different groups that they have to hang on to. So I think you're right. You know, that would it behooves the Democrats more to expand a little bit and make sure they have those coalitions on board, the coalition groups on board in order to uh, fare well in the elections. Um, but I am a little bit concerned with tribal politics and making it all about one person, because then it just seems like the parties are moving to the extremes and staying there. And like you said, you know, I've been teaching government for a long time and have taught government for years is that during the primary campaigns, we see the candidates moving towards more extremes in order to attract the party faithful, then they get the nomination, and then we move into the general election, and the parties move more towards the center. And you know, like Casey was saying about the bump, I'm wondering how much of a bump there will be nowadays. It does seem like both parties are playing to the base. So, you know, what I like to see with national conventions is the pep rally, and right. I, I did that uh, this year. Yeah, yeah, and it and it seems like what you're saying too is that this polarizing that polarization that we're seeing in our society as a whole uh, that's playing out on social media it's playing out in the media in general it's is that it, it's now kind of entered into the convention process and whether this is a one-off because of just the dynamics and the candidates uh, and and the format uh, like Casey said we'll, we'll just have to wait and see but but it but it all it seems like that that has found its way into a forum that while, yes, it did have a, a very much of a party focus, it was about bringing the message and the candidate of that party to the American public. And it, I'm, I'm interested to see more of the data coming out on viewership and how, you know, how many people who are uh, uh, who maybe lean Democrat watch the Republican convention, how many people who lean Republican watch the Democrat convention. I mean, and I think in that you're going to see, well, were minds already made up or in this format in the way that they were focused, okay, that's enough, you know, and how did viewership play out over the each night uh, that these events were happening? Um, I want want to turn to an issue that has uh, come up in the middle of this pandemic and something that I know we all address in our classes on Texas government. uh, And and I've talked, I've been talking about this for years because we can compare it with other states that do this uh, there's been a lot of discussion about voting by mail. I, earlier in the, the year, I had the uh, chairman of the Democratic Party of Texas on, and uh, we discussed this. And this is one of their uh, platform of uh, points of focus that, that they want more accessible voting, uh, uh, not just our absentee process, but, but voting by by mail in Texas. Um and so th- this presents this is a lot more complex, I think, than most people understand. We've talked a little bit about this on the show in some previous editions, but we've not really gone into it in depth. And especially with the different perspectives that we have here, uh, what when we look at our voting system and and the, the thought of having to vote by mail, um, Marcy, what do you see are uh, the some of the challenges with that uh, compared to, say, like a, a state like Oregon, where. Uh, they do vote by mail, uh, and there's a, and there's a process and things that they have to go through to do that. Uh, I think one of the I think answering that question, at least for me and maybe for our listeners, uh, looks at is 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 this really feasible? 
in Texas? Do, do we need to be able to do that? I mean, where, where should our focus be in facilitating voting uh, as well as a, a, a secure election that people can trust the outcome? That's a really good question. I'm not sure what they do in Oregon, uh, but I know here in Texas, having that registration requirement can be an issue because mm-hmm. you have to do that first, no matter what. So you have to get registered and people have to know how to get registered and people have to have that information accessible to them. And, you know, I fear one of the challenges is just Internet connectivity throughout the state and being able to access information that's timely. Where do I go to vote? How do I register? And we have to register by 30 days before the election. So you have to be thinking about it before it really gears up, you know, and gets close to the election. So I think that's an issue. Uh, that might limit the ability to go vote. Um, And I think, are you asking about just having vote by mail available for everybody? Right, right. Because I think some are pushing that. And I know the the Democratic Party leadership in the state, and they're looking at it in terms of the the pandemic that we're in and saying we have to facilitate voting. Otherwise, there's going to be long lines at, at polls or people aren't going to vote because they're afraid to go out and, and the, the, the chance that they might contract the uh, COVID virus. I mean, um, so really the, the practical aspects of that in, in Oregon, just to, to let you know that they do mail out the ballots. And so and there's a process by which you, you you get a ballot, you get a voter's guide, you can sit at the table, you can fill out your ballot. Uh, you can put it back in an envelope. You sign it. So when it comes back in, they scan those signatures uh, to make sure that it matches to the voter registration. So there's a process involved there. And of course, this brings in the question about the Postal Service and all that debate about uh, will will they arrive on time and how do you determine you know what's the process for ensuring that that's that actual person that voted if based on you know checking those signatures and so on. Uh, uh, to me, that seems like a very more difficult thing to do in a state the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so I didn't know if you had any, any, any thoughts on that in looking at voting in and of itself and how you how would a state like ours be able to ensure the integrity of, of, of that kind of vote? Right. Right. Well, and that's a really good question. I think how I was perceiving it was more just during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, is an option, a viable option for us all, and to make that access easier. And yet, at the same time, you know, I understand what you're saying about uh, the, the hesitation. You know, can we verify this is the person voting who is submitting this ballot? Absolutely. But yeah, on the other hand, I do know that, um, masks are encouraged but not required at polling places. Right, right. And if you think about, in general, who are those wonderful volunteers who are working as poll workers during election days? You know, they're usually people who are retired. And so there is that issue of concern. Are our polling places going to be staffed and are they going to be convenient for people to go vote? And now Greg Abbott has opened up early voting for six more days, which is a good thing. And that might encourage more people to go vote, which is good. But then again, you have transportation issues. Does everybody have transportation to get to the polls to do the early voting, which they might want to do because they don't want to go during election day? So I guess that's yeah where my mind was more. Sure, and that, that it sets us up for next week. I have the Erath County Clerk that will be on oh. the show next week, and we're going to ask specific questions about process and how kind of all this works. Uh, and 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 I saw that concern early on about the uh, those who are poll, poll workers for election day. Uh, so I actually I signed up. I'm I'm going to do the training and I'm going to be a an, an election official uh, on election day. Uh, and, I, and I think we need more. I think this is a time where we've got to have more people involved because there are going to be people who are are, are not wanting to do that and, and the chance of exposure, especially the, the number of people. And I want to say senior adults, but I'm, as I get closer to that age, I, I, I don't want to think that that's another category of people that I'm not associated with. So, uh, uh, but Casey, let, let's turn to you on this. What, what are your thoughts on, on some of the challenges here uh, in looking at voting in Texas? Well, it is it is extremely challenging. I mean, we looked at Oregon as the uh, as kind of the model there, but Oregon has 4.2 million people. That's Houston. 
Uh, and so that that's hard to translate uh, when you're talking about a, a, just the logistics of trying to pull that off uh, in a state the size of ours. Now, from the from the legal point of view, where the law is currently for the folks that can request an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot, uh, if you are disabled, then it qualifies. Or if you're over 65, you qualify. But being scared of catching a virus does not currently list. So that doesn't currently qualify. So there would have to be some some really quick changes put into place in order for that to happen. And all governments move slowly. Uh, and so I, I think logistically, that would be an extremely difficult uh, process to try to get into place for this round of elections. Uh, not to say that they can't, but I, they're not taking any action towards it yet. And so mail-in seems difficult to accomplish uh, under these circumstances. Now, going forward, uh, the bigger picture thing, I, I think the issue that most Texans are going to have uh, is just trust. Uh, it is legitimately how do you trust that this is the, the, the vote that occurred? Uh, how do you know that the right person filled out the ballot? I will tell you a little story. Some friends of my parents all of my life, dear, dear, sweet people, but one was a Democrat and one was a Republican. And they always went and voted every single year because they were afraid if they ever missed, the other one got the upper hand on them. And yeah. so I can just imagine them uh, in a mail-in ballot atmosphere, both of them running to the mailbox every day to see if the ballots came in because they're going to fill out both of them and mail them back in. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's <laughs> not even nefarious. That's just a, you know, a couple of spouses arguing with each other. And we wound up having an impact on the election. So I think trustworthiness is the biggest, uh, you know, public uh, perception that we'll have to deal with. Right. And I think that's the really the big issue as we get closer to Election Day, because uh, to me, I see this as a as, as a rule of law issue. I mean, are you we, we, we have a system that we've the majority of people over time have trusted in the outcome. They've, they've trusted in the process and the outcome with some debate, something we saw in 2000 with the issue with, with Bush and Gore and uh, the hanging chads and the, the time it took, you know, but it, it, it was resolved by the middle of December. So we're not talking about an extended period of time. I had that question come up on a, uh, a show, an interview I did where they were saying, well, what happens if this goes into January and all that? And and I, I was trying making the case to say they're, they're going to give this immediate attention. I mean, this went there were uh, I mean, like a handful of court cases uh, went through the Florida Supreme Court, went to the U.S. Supreme Court all in a matter of six weeks that that and, and this was resolved. Um, and so uh, uh, but the, the the other side of that is uh, d- Eroding trust in something that is a a, a, a very critical um, a process, the transition of power through elections, uh, trusting in the outcomes of that elections. And there's some elements here that I think that are setting themselves up uh, to to uh, have an impact on that. And, and one is and uh, I was I think mentioned this early on in the year was my call was in this midst of this pandemic, states need to be doing everything they can to ensure the integrity of the election. And, and that's and if that means allocating additional funding, which I know Congress, uh, there was a debate in Congress about additional monies to help with security and, and, and different things. But the other side of that is uh, if it's a close race, then it could be we may not know on the on election day. The other thing, too, is if you look at the percentage of, of absentee and mail-in ballots in, in some of the swing states where uh, uh, they have that process and, and the percentage of those that were rejected, uh, they're within the margin. They're, they're very close to the margin by which state uh, Trump won those states and won the electoral votes in those states. And so uh, I'm almost sitting here so, hoping that whoever wins, it's a blowout. So we don't have to deal with any of that, because that to me would be more dangerous than, you know, either candidate being elected as president, you know, uh, in the next four years would be that that people's trust erode in this in the system that we have and that we got to continue to to improve that. Uh, I don't know if you see some of those uh, dynamics kind of setting themselves up as well or I mean, that that 
to me that that that's the scary part of it is that when people start to lose faith in it and question it, the 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 repercussions of that are just tremendous because then it can it can go in all different directions. And I don't think we want to see that happen, not just in our state, but in our country as a whole. Any any final thoughts on that? This is one of the things that concerns me about polarization, because that's no matter what happens, there's going to be a question. Is it legitimate or not? You know, it's just it's real easy to retreat to uh, that feeling. And and that's troubling, you know. Um, so like uh, the Affordable Care Act during Obama's administration, was that legitimate? And some people feel like it isn't. And so there's this desire to overturn it. And uh, you, know, you could just extend that um, on with elections. And so is, is that what we want as a country? to question our election process. So I agree with you. The legitimacy of it is, is imperative. Casey, any final thoughts on your part? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a large portion of the American people that look at the electoral college as some kind of voodoo magic anyway. Uh, and this isn't going to help uh, if the electoral college process and the voting process is, is drawn into question. Uh, then, then, then that just erodes the trust not only in in the process in the electoral college, but in the government as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that you know tribal politics and that polarization that Marcy was speaking about uh, not only not only grabs hold in, in popular uh, view, but then could have long lasting repercussions mm-hmm. that change the way we've set up our system of government uh since the since the you know first writing of the constitution and and you know there's some parts of that whether it's you know thought of as voodoo magic or not that are legitimate there's reasons we have them uh and uh that would certainly be called into question well i want to thank you both for for joining me today this is great discussion great insight you both brought in points that uh, made me think different ways about some of these issues and i know that it'll do that for our listeners so i hope you'll be willing to come back and do a roundtable in the future on, on other issues as well. This is uh, Casey Thompson and Marcy Reynolds, members of our political science faculty here at Tarleton State. And I want to thank you for joining us today here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Look us up on Facebook for related articles. Listen at tarletonradio.com or look, look at SoundCloud after the show uh, where we are as well. And we'll look forward to having you back together with us next week. podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.